From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's good to have Brett Felter. Okay, we even worked together, but that's for another conversation. We know him from things ranging from Glee to 911. I mean, I can't think of a bigger expanse of drama to deal with than he has done. His newest series for Netflix is Brother's Son. First of all, Brett, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I would never say no to you. Well, one of the things that runs through your work, and I wanted to, I've wanted to ask you this for a long time, so when I do it here, is the loyalty that's demanded between profession and family. And it can be literal family or figurative family. But what is the calling? Where do your loyalties lie? It's really the heart of this show, but it runs through so much of what you do. I never thought about it, but I, when I think about it, I think that's true. And I mean, if I were to top of my head, think about what that's about. I mean, I don't know. I think uh, a child growing up in the seventies, you had, you had parents that are certainly a father that worked, um, worked very hard. My father was a very successful doctor and professor at uh, Harvard Medical School and was a great dad, but wasn't wasn't necessarily home a lot. And so maybe maybe I'm expressing some some inner turmoil about uh, about how it felt uh, to wonder where Dad's allegiances were. I mean, I know that his heart was always with us, but I also appreciate that um, how much work gave him a sense of satisfaction. I feel the same way. Along that line, that question of definition of masculinity comes into so much of the work you've done too. Absolutely, and and it's so often a generational definition of masculinity. And you just sort of outlined that here and just talking about yourself. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's that for, for this show in particular, for a brother in particular, you know, what's what's so great about being able to explore it in this show is you have two brothers, one raised in the in really deeply in the masculine by his father, one raised An very- old school masculine. Old school say. masculine, very old school, very traditional, and also very uh, Chinese traditional masculine. And then a son raised by mostly his mother in a very feminine space and how they're different because of how they were raised. And when they come together, they each teach each other this other form of masculinity. The, the form of masculinity that, that Bruce, the younger brother, really has um, has mastered is the, is the sort of vulnerable version of it, is the ability to have feelings and feel close to people and make uh, these kinds of emotional sacrifices. And, and the masculinity that, um, Charles, the older brother, has his strength and violence and aggression. And they both start teaching each other the different ways. Each starts picking it up from the other one and they become better men because of it. But in this, in the world they live in or the world they're living in at the moment, it becomes very dangerous. You know, for someone like Charles, who's a killer to become vulnerable, puts him in a, in a lot of danger in his life. And for someone like, like Bruce, who's much more sensitive to become aggressive, puts him in very dangerous situations. And so... Making this one complete man is, uh, it's be, it's obviously, um, we're trying to say it's it's not safe. But it's so interesting because all these things we're talking about are schisms. And there's so often a sort of schism, even between the brothers, between Charles and Bruce, there's a schism between the heart and the head. Mm-hmm. Charles, even though he's been, and he's sacrificed too because he's given himself, he's been trained to be a tool his entire life. But he's also somebody who's incredibly in his way, sensitive. I mean, he lives by his taste, literally and physically. I'm trying not to give too much away because the show is so much fun. And and dealing with all these things, 
it gives you a chance to play them as much for comedy as for melodrama. And is that what you like about, too, that these kinds of divisions and these wars between loyalties are as funny as they are tragic often? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always, we always like to, I always like to do on, you know, really starting with Glee, which was, if you have a very dramatic scene and something dramatic happens, it's really good to to pop it with something funny because for the most part, you know, the pains of of being a human are kind of funny too. It's a little bit ridiculous as well. And so being able to to play with that also allows, you know, if uh, I want the audience to be able to, as a storyteller, you want them to experience something. They're seeing something on the screen that is that gives them some insight into their own lives. And so if you can, you know, dramatize something sort of relatable and dramatic and upsetting, but also understand the ridiculousness of it, then I think for the audience watching, they can also incorporate that into their experience of whatever they're going through. It's so funny, too, as you're saying that, I was realizing so often in these things you've done that the, at least one person is aware of the absurdity of these <laughs> these collisions. It's one person who's aware, and by the often by the end of a season, the other person who's like that, their polar opposite is aware. And that's the way it works in in this show. And I just, it's a fascinating way to work because it gives you a chance to do so many different things. But that lack of self-awareness, I mean, that runs through so much of the stuff that you've done too. Somebody with, who lacks self-awareness is pretty, it's usually pretty funny. It's kind of funny when you're, when you're with somebody who lacks self-awareness. I mean, it's also pretty upsetting, but it's, uh, it's funny and, and, my rule is always, what does the moment require? So sometimes the moment requires something very deeply emotional and serious, and sometimes it requires being funny. And that could happen within the span of a couple of seconds where the moment requires something different. And so I always try and write to that moment. And if it tells me, okay, this is a moment where I think something funny needs to happen, even though something really dramatic is happening, then I like to sort of honor that. But you never quite know what it's going to be until you start writing it and you're sort of working with it. And then it ends up being sort of genre smashing together. But I think audiences, especially now, are totally able to do that, are able to appreciate multiple genres smashing together that, you know, you know I mean, someone like Tarantino does that so, so well to be able to say, no, it's going to be both. There's going to be violence and there's going to be humor at the same time. We're talking about smashing things together, right? I guess Brad Falchuk, his new show co-created is Brother's Son on Netflix. You can also have the show KCRW.com slash The Treatment. Um, talk to me about how this came together because even though there's a lot of action in your stuff and a lot of movement, you've not really done an action show before. And and you worked with a co-creator in this too. So talk about how the, all this came together. Well, when I when I um, I signed a, a new deal at Netflix a few years ago with the, and, and I started a company there with the intention of, of doing stuff with new collaborators. I had done everything I'd done before with a lot of the same collaborators, which is great. And I, and I, and I, Brad and Ian. Uh, Ian and Ryan and, uh, and Ryan, um, and Stephen Canales. And I wanted to see, okay, I want to find other collaborators and do some stuff on my own. So what would that look like? My intention is always to find stories that, or, or projects of worlds that are new for me, that I'm unfamiliar with, that I can explore, that I'm excited about. Like I, I, you know, I love baseball. I wouldn't want to do a baseball show because wouldn't be an adventure for me. I almost like to know too much about it for it to be fun for me. Um, and I also wouldn't know what's interesting about it anymore because I know what's interesting to, about baseball to me and other maybe baseball nerds, but is that something I could express to someone who doesn't love baseball? I don't know. And so I started my company and the person I, who is my sort of producing partner who runs the company, Michael Bondison, um, who's sort of very, he's a Danish guy, he's very out in the world. And he had an assistant 
a few years ago uh, for his management company. He used to be a manager uh, named Byron Wu. And so Byron uh, was a terrible assistant, kept in touch with Mikkel uh, throughout the years. He was an AFI graduate and kept sending him scripts and saying, hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And none of them really were quite ready. He's young. He wasn't even in the Writers Guild. And then he sent him uh, the script for Brother Son. And, and we knew Netflix was looking for something with some action uh, in it. And so when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is a world I'm not that familiar with. This sort of the, the world of the sort of Asian immigrant family. I like that. And the, and the world of the triads, those are, that's a crime uh, world that hasn't really been seen on TV much. It's like, well, I'm kind of intrigued by that. And then I met with Byron and he's such a, he's such an endearing guy and so clearly talented and competent beyond his experience. And so I said, I think this is a guy I could partner with. I said, so Byron, let's, let's take this script and do our thing. Like this isn't there. We need to write this script and create this show, turn it into a show. And so we spent a little while doing that. And, and, and then Netflix uh, was very excited about it. When we opened the writer's room, we said, okay, we're going to, but if we're telling an Asian story, so we're going to have only Asian writers, except me. So we hired an all Asian writer's room to really make sure that so many of the cultural touch points were really, really specific and authentic and that Asian audiences could watch and be like, oh yeah, that's my mom or that's my house or that's my refrigerator or all that. And the truth is all these other, all these writers are also brilliant at comedy and action and all that as well. And it's a show that plays with and toys with, with expectation. I mean, right down to just showing us a Disney Channel star in the first episode who shows a very different side of herself. I'm not going to give too much away to the way you use Michelle Yeoh in the, in the show. And you tease us with the idea of her fighting for a long time. But that's something you like to do anyway, sort of toward I think expectation, it's, I think isn't that's, it? Uh, I think that's never, uh, never something that's conscious. Really? I think, I think a conscious, the conscious so let's, choice Let's is, look at Glee, which is all about sort of thwarting expectation, playing with things, and smashing together the idea of musical and drama rather than musical and comedy, but playing it so over the top that we're not sure if we're supposed to laugh or not laugh. This wasn't conscious? Well, I think it's, I think I said it, it, it begins consciously with an intention as to the kind of worlds you want to create as a, as a show creator. Okay. But then once you're getting into the work, like I said, it's what's the moment call for and what does the tone of the show call for? And, you know, what happens is you're working and you're writing and there's a choice to make and you know the choice to make that would be expected. And so you stop yourself and say, hold on, I want to make the one that's less expected because it just feels wrong on the page or it feels wrong on the, you know, uh, on the set. Like this feels familiar in a bad way. And so you try and go just a little bit left, not too far left, but just a little bit left. So much of it is about subversion and, and contradiction and, and these ideas of bringing things together that often weren't brought together or when they were, they were done in a really campy way. Mm -hmm. And Glee veers close to camp, but it's not camp. And Pose deals with the uh, the concept of camp, but it's not camp. Mm -hmm. I mean, so often what we're kind of waiting for never happens. Yeah, that's really important. It's like, like once it becomes camp, I think it loses its its grounding, and once it loses its grounding, I think the audience just um, disconnects. I think they just need to know you're looking after them. So I'm going to keep this real enough. Keep it, and sometimes you fail, and sometimes it goes a little bit too far. But the intention is always to keep everything grounded. And if you keep everything grounded, you can go pretty nuts. You know, I think in the brother's son, it's the idea is his grounded relationship with these people and how the sons are connected to their mom and, and, and beholden to their mom and, and trying to figure out each other 
then you can have some pretty crazy action sequences that some kind of unbelievable stuff happens in. Not unbelievable as in terms of people flying, you know, it's not, it's not one of these. So wire work. Not wire work, but unbelievable. Like, wow, this is, uh, you know, there's an episode two, there's um, a pretty wild action sequence that happens at a kid's birthday party that you- With the Jurassic is, Park quote <laughs> at the yes, end of it. Exactly, exactly. And so I think as long as emotionally things are grounded, then you can get away with a lot. You're talking about emotionally grounded. And in that sequence, what happens in a lot of the action sequences and the fights is people are picking up what's at hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, people aren't showing up with weapons. It's just about, in this way, problem solving as, as things are happening in front of you. When we were designing the action for the show, the idea was to keep it in the space they were in, was to put people in space and say, it's not about John Wick showing up with guns. Nothing wrong with that, but it's not what we were doing. And so whatever's there, you got to use. That's a very big p- part of the personality of the action of the show. It is because it's about ingenuity in the moment. Certainly, Charles and Bruce are defined by the way they're able to sort of use things around them and their mother as well. And that's a big part of what's going on too, is just we judge characters by how they react in the moment and see what they can use, don't we? Yeah, and this is and this is something also which makes it you know very specific to a, to a story about an Asian family is that, and I know this from working with all the Asian writers and and hearing them tell their stories about their lives and and about what it's like to grow up in those families and how structured it is and how rules based it is and how you are you are trains on a rail you are not boats swimming around, and so the idea within this space these characters are improvising and being wild and free. It's playing again with that idea of how within these structures that you're that you have to be defined by based on these hierarchical structures in these families, you can improvise and you can be wild and you can have fun. We're gonna take a break and talk more about improvising with our guest Brad Falter. His newest creation for Netflix is a series of Brothers Son. It's the treatment. There's more to come. Stay with us. We're hydrating with Brad Falchuk. He's the co-creator of The Brother's Son on Netflix, among many other series. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at kcrw.com slash The Treatment. Can't talk to you here without asking you about how you got Michelle Yeoh to do this. We should say Academy Award winner, Michelle Yeoh. Yeoh. Yeah. You know, the part is written for Michelle Yeoh without ever thinking you're going to get Michelle Yeoh to play this part, right? It's like, well, yeah, this is the perfect part for her, but we'll never, never get her. And we had an amazing casting a director named Jenny Ju on the show. And she said, you know, I think we should try and get Michelle. And this was uh, right before Everything Everywhere All at Once had come out, like within weeks before. I think there were already some test screenings going on or not test screenings, some, you know, VIP screenings and stuff going on around. And um, she got the script to her manager, David Unger, who's really a wonderful guy. And he really liked it for her. And I said, okay, so will she sit with us? And she doesn't sit without an offer. People like Michelle don't. Somehow the gods, you know, allowed us to sit with her. Byron and Kevin, the director, and I sat with her at the Beverly Wilshire for, in the, you know, in the grill for three hours having coffee and just talking about, she'd read a couple of scripts, a couple of three scripts, all about the show and the ideas and the thoughts. And she had all these thoughts about a lot of the cultural stuff and a lot of the character stuff and what mama was up to and where it goes and what's this, you know, and movie stars like that. And there's a reason why they're stars. Like they totally understand what a project needs to be to make them shine. And they pick those ones and they pick the people that they know will take care of them. So they want to sit with you and sit across from you and say, is this person going to 
look after me creatively. Obviously, as a person, as an actor, you're going to get all the all the things you need are going to be managed for you. But creatively, is this a, someone who's going to make me shine? And she knew she was about to come out with a movie that was really going to change things for her as much as it can. And so she wanted to do next this project in a way that would make sure it was honoring that. And um, yeah, she said, okay, let's do it. And then and then Netflix was sort of stepped up. We, we did not have the budget for someone like her and they stepped up and and got her, made her deal. And that was that, but it was, it was a personal connection is really what it was. And I think, um, you know, in my experience working with stars of that level is that, like I said, first of all, they wanna make sure they're being creative and taken care of. And second of all, they're always gonna be difficult about the work and about nothing else. They're never gonna be difficult except, is this good enough? And so they're gonna push you to make it better. And so I think, you know, in that meeting, she understood that like we, we, we were all on the same page with that. Like we were never gonna stop it. It was gonna be great for her and great for all of us. And she was awesome. I mean, she was, and she really looked, all, most of the other actors are so young and green. And she really was uh, gently looked after them, you know, led by example and sometimes led with a look. And it also interesting too, is kind of the logical following to everything everywhere all at once because it's more real. And she's been in so many situations in film that have been about something extraordinary. And for her, the way she is a part of this is a way that's these situations are kind of normal. And then they, they become something other than normal. But that becomes a part of the way that she's employed, too. And I was wondering how much calculation there is in that, because we're waiting for big Michelle yell moments. And I don't want to use the word subvert again. Never again when I talk to you will use the word subvert. It's okay. No, I love it. I love it. But there's a toying with with that that becomes its own sort of meditation, doesn't it? Definitely. Even her clothes, you know, we made sure, you know, when we picked her costumes, she picked her costumes. It was like, what would my mom wear? Not my mom, some Byron's mom. Well, what she's would... wearing it in the, in the last episode for a big kitchen sequence. I mean, I was laughing at the costume. I couldn't help but look at what she's wearing. Yeah. So that was part of it too. It's like, no, no, she has to be a mom, really be a mom, you know, and also her brilliance is in her mind, is her ability to, to sort of plan and think and all that. It's not necessarily in her being able to kick butt, though she can. But yeah, it was it was giving her something different. And I, and I feel like she's, you know, again, it's like she's she's an Oscar winner. It's like she can she should do all this as well. We're talking about surprises with our guest, Brad Falchuk. His newest creation is for Netflix. It's the series, The Brother's Son. You can also have this show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I mean, a lot of the music choices made me laugh out loud. I'm not, I'm trying so hard, Brad, not to give things away for people because I don't want to ruin the surprise. But there are moments in this that are about intimacy. Even when the violence happens, it happens in really intimate spaces, which kind of makes you lean forward because it's not the sort of like big showdown kinds of things and big rooms we're often expecting. It's in places like kitchens or birthday parties or hotel rooms. There's a big sense in the show of spaces being violated very often. And I want to ask you about that because that's the way we think about spaces and the way you dramatize these spaces is so much about making us aware of what these things are normally used for and what's happening in front of us. And that's, it's kind of an apotheosis here on this show. Yeah, it was very intentional. It was to, you know, certainly in the, um, you know, in the pilot where you have, you have these two big fight sequences that happen in kitchens, in homes. And it was immediately trying to tell the audience, no place is safe. Nope, these people aren't going to be safe anywhere. And that most of the drama of this is going to happen in the home. It's not 
jumping on top of trains and, and all that. Not that there's anything, obviously. Jumping a motorcycle on top of a train is pretty incredible, but but it's not an action movie in that way. This is all happening in the home and just the way that the drama is happening in the home. It's all about this family's interactions with each other and the way that they're trying to trying to keep the family together and protect the family, whatever that means, emotionally. But the violence is an expression of that, where the settings are, is, an, is an expression of that. By the end, we come to understand that the parents really do know their children in ways that are fascinating. There's a scene between the father and one of the sons, I'm not going to give away, where we realize that even though he hasn't seen them, he actually knows them very well. Also, the brothers not knowing each other. I mean, one of my favorite lines in, in, that you've ever done is there's a line in the first episode where Bruce says, well, I'm a rebel. He goes, well, if you're a rebel who's not telling anybody what you're doing, then you're just a liar. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of an amazing thing. There's just, there's so many detonations in that and there's so much sort of hurt and so much surgical sort of use of language. Even though there's a lot of wildness, a lot of energy, there's a lot of precision in this show. Oh, yeah. You know, one of the things that was important to me about going and doing my own stuff was I tend to be in my process more precise. And when you're working with other partners, you're, you're, you're sort of compromising in terms of how precise and how much time to spend on this and how much order there should be. It's been very successful, those uh, collaborations. But with this, I, I really wanted to be very precise to know that everything was connected and everything had a place and there was no hanging things and there was and that and that everything was sort of thoughtful in that way and so you know it's the advantage of working at a place like netflix is that the ability to write every script before you start shooting so you have the whole story really concrete laid out and obviously there's rewrites that happen as you're doing budgeting and all that and things change or a note from a michelle or something but there was a a real order and precision to the process, both on the set and on the page, and hopefully in the show, that I feel proud of. I feel I feel expresses something new for me, so, something that I think I hope people notice. Well, I think you, we have to notice it just because, again, so often in the show there is something about precision uh, or, or specificity. The reason I brought it up because it felt like a new wrinkle, something I hadn't seen in, in, in your work before. I'm very very focused on process, and I try and make sure everybody. And, you know, it's like when you're the showrunner, you're the governing body and, and, and how you are and how you think sort of is how everybody acts. And so process was so important to me and order was so important to me that everybody, everyone's having a lot of fun, but that we had a real structure and order that everybody could depend on. So we knew we're going to make it today. It's going to, we have, we know exactly where we're shooting. We know we can shoot it. We know that if we need to, you know, have a COVID shutdown, we have another script we can pull up because it's all uh, there. And so there's never chaos. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm proud of that part of it. It's also interesting, too, because certainly a lot of the stuff that you worked on has leaned towards the operatic. And while there are big moments in here, this is less operatic than I've come to expect from you. Like I said, I, I think that I'm so proud of all of the work I've done before. And so the partnerships I've had have been so incredible because you have different people bringing different things. And so my hope is when people watch this show is they say, oh, I can kind of get what Brad was bringing to all those other shows. Now I kind of see now what his stuff was. And some people might watch and be like, I like the other stuff better. I don't, I, I, I was a big fan of that, but I, what I liked obviously wasn't Brad in those shows, but, and hopefully other people will watch and say, okay, now I, now, now it all starts to start to make sense. We're, we're um, a little more clear to find what my, what my voice is. It's so interesting too, because I guess, think about all the times where there was the threat of physical violence in, in your shows. So they, 
so much about emotional violence. And this is a show that's about both of them. And by the end, it's hard to tell what caused more damage, the emotional or the physical damage. Definitely. I mean, I don't want to, nobody wants to get punched in the face, but the emotional violence is far more dangerous. I mean, that's uh, far more upsetting. You know, a, you know, wound heals, but a biting, you know, word can be, you know, wound you for life. But also the, for both of these people, for both of these, these sons, uh, these brothers, and and then this is something that's been a big part of what you've done too, even with grown up people. There've always been these stories about these sort of coming of age stories in one way or another. And people reckoning with a kind of a maturing about something that they hadn't anticipated. And this is definitely about that and accepting who you are versus what the world expects of you. I guess I wonder where that comes from too, because that's so key to these things that you've done. I feel like that is definitely a personal journey for me. That is something I'm I'm always sort of thinking about and working towards. And I think a lot of it goes back to I'm super dyslexic and growing up very dyslexic and not knowing. I wasn't diagnosed until college. Oh my. And so I, I always felt a pull between the expectations of me and and what I knew my abilities to be, which were which were there was a big gap. And so I was always fighting against saying, okay, well, I know you you think I'm I'm this, you know, I know you think I'm a a C minus student, but I feel like I can contribute more. Or I know you think I'm really smart, but I know I'm not. And so there was always this uh, this this conflict there and this tension there. And so I think, you know, the idea that you can break out of your, you know, youthful identity into a frontier where you can sort of identify yourself by your own terms is a story that I, I do continue to go back to telling. Your work is clearly, and always has been to me, I think explicitly autobiographical in some way. I imagine for a writer, it has to be, doesn't it? I mean, I always... You tell me because it, given that so much of what you've done has been genre work, maybe not, we can't use the word subverting anymore, but making us ask questions about genre. The same kinds of questions that were probably posed to you about who and what you were. And, and yeah. these, these sort of contained areas where you do this, 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 and you say, well, my life has not been about that. Why would I want to have that impose that same kind of stricture and certitude and rule following about these genres? I, I always see the genre as a vehicle. There's a story I want to tell, which is urgent to me at the time, something I'm going through, something I'm thinking about, some ideas I have, some some personal journey. And so the genre, I can use that to tell that story. And so if it's a horror show, you know, if you're talking about the first season of American Horror Story was, I mean, at the time I was dealing with, I was dealing with my own first marriage falling apart. So I want to tell a story about that. I want to talk about that. And so... A horror genre is a perfect place to do that. But yes, it's autobiographical in that way. And so I think obviously for all of us for Glee, it had to be autobiographical because we're all we're telling well, our high school stories. The first American horror story too is also about loyalty. Is your loyalty to yourself or to this thing that's disintegrating that people have expectations about? Exactly, exactly. And so it's also why I say always, I'm always looking for a new world to explore because, because it's I want to write with some urgency about whatever I'm emotionally dealing with. And a new world allows me to stay fresh and stay new and, and all of that. And so, you know, if I were to write the first season of American Horror Story now, it would be really different because I'm just a different person and I'm, I have different ideas. I'm going through different things. And my ideas about marriage are completely different, have completely changed since then. And I have older kids and, and all of this. So, so yes, I think good writing is always autobiographical. It has to be. Every character is you in some way. 
Well, my guest was maybe now want to go and rewatch all of his shows again <laughs> is Brad Falchuk. His new show for Netflix is, which he's co-created and runs the show, is The Brother's Son. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I wish you the best. What do you get when you combine an Emmy-winning writer-producer and an Oscar-winning action icon? The result is the Netflix series Brother's Son, where we heard from its co-creator, Brad Falchuk. Origin stories of all kinds at the archives at kcrw.com slash the treatment. I'm just watching legends come into being before my ears. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. There's more to come. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. The book is Spielberg, The First Ten Years, and its author, filmmaker, and writer, Owen Boozwell, has done a number of terrific film books. One of my favorite is his book on the storyboards of James Bond. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. The book deals with his first ten years. It's really amazingly autobiographical and biographical about Spielberg. You mentioned something in the introduction that I thought was really kind of the, the foundation on which the book rests. In 1980, after Hitchcock died, you saw all of his movies in the space for a month, and then you met Francois Truffaut at a bookstore. And there's a join between these two filmmakers for me. And I imagine that's why you put that section in the book too, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it was interesting growing up in France. There was such a an incredible access to to films. Period. So, so when Hitchcock died, I literally made it a mission to watch all of his films, and they were all being re released, even the silent movies, and it was just incredible. And of course, that became part of my education as as someone who who loves movies to study Hitchcock. But of course, I love Truffaut. Why? Because he loved Hitchcock and he had been in Close Encounters. <laughs> Not the right reasons, right? But I used to go to this bookstore in, in Paris every Saturday, just like clockwork. And I would literally try to see like, what are the new posters he has and blah, blah, blah. And Truffaut's new movie, The Last Metro, was about to come out that Wednesday following that weekend. And I was saying, true for this, true for that. And he walked into the store. And I remember he bought two books, including one by his mentor, André Bazin, you know. It was a Saturday, he had a tie on, a suit, and he was, he looked frail to me. It wasn't like the image I had of Truffaut from Close Encounters. And 
since we were the only ones in the store, I started talking to him and I said, you know, I'm so excited about your new movie. And he had just done The Green Room, which had been a huge flop. And he he was just so down on himself and saying, you know, my movie is this and it's who knows and the business that. And I was so young and yet it was kind of a lesson like to, to meet one of my idols and to realize how vulnerable he was still after <laughs> the kind of career that he'd had at that point. We talked about Hitchcock and we talked about Stephen and Close Encounters. And, and the irony is, of course, The Last Metro is the movie that put him back on the map. And sadly, he passed away very few years later. But um, it was a, an incredible encounter. And I'm glad I did meet him because I was able to quote that that story to Stephen when I was interviewing him. And, you know, those little connections, even though they're very, they're nothing compared to the kind of exposure he's had to those people, they're connecting, you know? I mentioned that meeting uh, with Truffaut and the Hitchcock because those filmmakers, those sensibilities intersect in Spielberg. I mean, you linger on the, the connection that Robert Shaw and and Richard Dreyfuss and Roy Scheider had and how he met them. That, to me, could almost be a, a weird scene from a malevolent version of Small Change. But th- there is an intersection for me, as often as not, between Hitchcock and Truffaut. And that seems to surface again and again in the interviews, these terrific interviews that you have with him. We forget that in the course of 10 years, he made almost every single film change the language of film. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And I don't think anyone has, has equaled or or even come close to that kind of journey that he had during those 10 years. You know, here's the thing about Stephen. He is classically trained. He loves cinema in a way that no one loves cinema today, I think. Why do you, you say know? that? Because I just think that people in general, we want to be filmmakers. I don't know that they go that far back into the classic cinema, into classic filmmaking. And we're talking about Hitchcock, Truffaut, John Ford, all the William Wyler, all those great filmmakers. I just don't know that you go to a young wannabe filmmaker and you say, name me a William Wyler movie. First of all, they may say, who is William Wyler? And if they do know who he is, I don't know that they will be able to name a film and say, that movie really inspired me to do what I do. It's interesting, John Williams, who I'm making a film about right now, said that that's why they connected, he and Stephen, is because as much as Stephen loves classic cinema and his references were classic films, John was the same way with music. He's classically trained and inspired and very much self-taught, but learned from the classic composers as opposed to looking to what was happening at the time and to the future. I, I very much connect to that. And I love that you're drawing parallels between, you know, Truffaut and Hitchcock and Jaws. And because, you know, the cinema of Jaws, you have that shot from Vertigo (laughs) when Roy Scheider is on the beach, you know. Uh, I I love that. Those first things that Spielberg did were really very intimate stories. And there's so much intimacy in Jaws that 
it makes sense that he would want to use a score, something like images for it. You think about, I mean, that, that score for images could be perfect for eyes, which is this, the thing that put him on the map that you mentioned in the book, the Night Gallery episode that, that he directed. But there's so much intimacy in those things he did until Jaws that it almost made me feel like John Williams opened up an epic sensibility in him. He said, stop thinking like that. Think bigger. And you can see him rejecting it when Williams plays those notes for him. But I feel like that begins a whole new cycle for Spielberg. Do you think that too? Yeah. The one thing that I, I try to do, because it's really from Duel to E.T., the book, you know. So Duel is a little bit of an odd thing because Duel was first done for television and then he expanded it for the European market. But the thing that I was really trying to do while I was putting this book together was I want to find a common theme between all those movies. What What is the common theme? And I suddenly discovered what it was, and it was home. In Duel, you have a man who is threatened to never go home. And by the way, he's having, you know, marital problems at home. And when he's having that conversation with his wife in a laundromat of all things at a gas station, somebody has opened one of the washers and it's seen through the washer, which is a symbol of, of home, right? So home is very much part of dual and the threat of never going home. Sugarland Express, his next movie, is about a couple trying to reunite with their kid and to form a home. Jaws is about the character of Roy Scheider, Brody, who left home being New York and has made a new home in Amity. And it's interesting when his son is nearly killed by the shark and they are at the hospital and, and he's like, okay, take, take the kid home. And she says, home here or home New York? He's like, home here. He's made a vow now. I'm staying here. This is going to be my new home. What do they sing on the boat, the three guys? About home. So then... Show me the way to go home. Show me the way to go home. So then we have Toes Encounters, which is the story of a man who leaves home. Then you have 1941, which is an attack on the homeland. And the last image of the film is a home sliding down a hill, a dune. Then you go to Raiders, which is Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. We see he has a home, but he's a man with no home. He's always on the run. And we end those 10 years with E.T. phone home. So I said to Stephen, isn't that interesting? And he's like, wow, I guess I've never been far away from home. And that takes us to the last two movies. I mean, and you did that terrific book on West Side Story. Those last two films, West Side Story and Fablemans, are about home, too. West Side Story starts with a homeland being destroyed and then the end of an era. And it's so interesting, too, because a lot of these, in addition to home being the through line thematically, they're about a moment where it's kind of the end of a way of life. Yeah, for sure. And it's a it's a challenge and it's a, it's almost a metaphor for all those characters trying to, you know, recreate something that's threatened or that's lost. And it's interesting, you know, Close Encounters and E.T. are sort of reflective of one another, but reflect so much about who the director is. Because in Close Encounters, you have this man, Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfuss, who decides to leave home. And Stephen, admittedly, when I did that first interview with him for Close Encounters, was on the set of Saving Private Ryan, just for context. Which is also about people trying to get home. I know. 
he said to me, I could never make Close Encounters today or, or have that kind of ending because I'm a family man now. This is who I was then. I could never have a character who leaves his family, his, family, his home to create a new life somewhere else. And E.T., you see the, the maturity of Elliot becoming a man because at the beginning of the film, he is completely overshadowed by his kid brother, even his little sister. Everybody's making fun of him. And, and this psychic connection that he has with E.T., which is really interesting, through E.T. starting, to, he grows. He experiences getting drunk because when E.T. drinks, he gets drunk, right? So uh, it's a rite of passage in many ways. And when E.T. is watching uh, um, The Quiet Man on TV and, and, and John Wayne gives a kiss, he's kissing a girl in school. So there's a sense that Elliot is becoming a man and unlike Roy Neary in Close Encounters, he decides to stay home and now he's the man of the home. By the way, it's a treat. My guess is Laurent Bozo's terrific book, new book, is Spielberg the first 10 years. You can also show com slash the treatment. I feel E.T. is a case of maturation for him because he's finally a collaborator. I mean, the way he talks with you about his relationship with Melissa Matheson, how important she was to that movie, as we said in the first half, that she had these cars that basically helped. I feel she co-directed the movie with him in some ways. I don't know if I would go that far as to say she, she is a co-director, but it's definitely a beautiful collaboration and a very important one. But I think he was collaborating prior to that. George Lucas on Raiders, that's an important collaboration. And he is sort of, especially with Close Encounters, I think after Jaws, he works with Michael Kahn for the first time and continues his relationship with John Williams. And he, Stephen has always said that John is his sort of like last draft of a script and sort of like the rewrite artist. But for that comes up a few times because Harrison Ford is the last draft for Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I mean to say. But the section, and the reason I say this about Melissa, because that section, it's really, we can feel his connection with a screenwriter in a way we don't feel in any, in any of the other interviews. He, he really talks about her at length. He's, he talks about how hard it is to get a screenplay from one draft to the next. Often it's not, it's not the same writer. That's why it's called Development Hell. And walking through this process and then seducing Kathy Kennedy by giving her this script, I guess I mean to say to have a collaboration with a woman, because she brought a level of emotional, I think, honesty to this, that he couldn't fight so much anymore. He kind of surrendered. That, to me, is why that's the loveliest section of the book, the E.T. section. Yeah, no, I agree. And and I knew Melissa, who who passed away, sadly, so way too early, and and she was so incredibly connected to the kids. And I saw that also happen on BFG, which was the last film she did. And that was incredible. And again, you see that level of confidence that Stephen has in his own vision, but also in his generosity toward a partner like Melissa, a collaborator, like Kathy, really putting them in charge of a lot of very important aspect of the filmmaking, which was before the camera started rolling. <laughs> and Melissa was very complicit to taking care of the kids and rehearsing and 
and really making them feel like this world was real. But also giving them that support of all those note cards. I mean, that's, yeah. for me, you're talking about trust. For him to trust somebody that much that he had the writer on the set supplying him with material to help him shape these performances with those children, I had no idea that there was that level of confidence in that collaboration that they had until these, this interview. Especially after an experience like 1941, which wasn't good, and an experience like Raiders, which was good and successful, but not entirely his, because the script is by Larry Kasdan and stories. And, and so many people. And it feels like it, that's his way, it not feels like. And that's why I wanted to bring this back to Truffaut, because <laughs> Truffaut is talking about the failure of the green room with you as he's wondering how the last Metro is going to do. And 1941, which is, by the way, a movie I have an enormous amount of affection for. Oh, me too. And I hope that's obvious in the book. I think it's yeah. com- completely obvious. It's a movie that because of the way it was perceived. And as you point out in this section, it was not a failure. It's thought to be that. It was not the success as other films have been. It was not epical. After the hubris, which I think is completely a part of the charm, because so many of the guys in that movie are assaultive and hubristic and arrogant, that he makes the next movie about a guy who basically who's arrogant, who basically has the arrogance slapped out of him literally by his girlfriend in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then about coming to accept the childlike side of you, but to grow up. I mean, that to me, that sequence of 1941 to Raiders of the Lost Ark to E.T. is a remarkable section in the book. Yeah, and you really feel that there is very a very thin line between the films and the creator. And that, to me, is very moving and he very seems, unique. He seems surprised in his conversations. Do you think because he had never given these films, hadn't given this film that much thought for years? Yeah, I think at the time that I did those interviews, of course, I also updated those interviews with recent discussions with him. But really, the, the backbone of those discussions were done at a time where he had not spoken at length about those films with anyone. Now, he may have said a few things about Jaws when he was promoting, you know, Close Encounters or whatever, but nothing that deep, uh, no pun intended. So it was kind of interesting to take him down memory lane and to sort of have him look back at those films and what those experiences were for him. And you really get a sense of his transformation, not only as a filmmaker, but as a man. And I find it fascinating and, again, very unique I have to say, you know, talking about Stephen and those first 10 years was important to me because I I really feel like those movies really signify the birth of an artist and at the same time, so a very micro kind of story. And at the same time, through those films, he changed the language of cinema. Again, I find that very unique to him and I hope... Uh, I hope it's recognized and appreciated. Well, my guest is Laurent Buzo. His fascinating book, it's worth picking up. It's work to pick up, but it's worth picking up. Is Spielberg, the first 10 years. He's also a terrific and gifted filmmaker. Laurent, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. The man.
impressive and beautiful new book, Spielberg, The First Ten Years, is from producer, director, and author, Laurent Bourgeois. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. From director Dorsey Alavi, who gave us the Amazon documentary Wayne Shorter, Zero Gravity, here's her reflection on a film by a director who broke ground just as effortlessly as Wayne Shorter did. This is Dorsey Alavi, and this is The Treat. One of my favorite films that had such an impact on me was Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. So Bergman, for me, was a master of exploring the human condition on the screen. And he keeps you mesmerized without using plot or overt conflicts. He was able to keep you engaged by creating rich characters, and the story would emanate from how they cope with moral and ethical dilemmas. It's visually stunning, and you are immediately immersed into the world he has created. It's joyful, it's humorous, it's emotional, it's dark and mystical at the same time. It is a childhood story, but more importantly, it shows how a tragedy can change the course of an entire family's life. You know, his childhood, I mean, just having the father that he did and the life that he did, he was always writing about that in some manner. And this particularly, just actually making it about a young boy. And I saw that boy as young Bergman and that family, the bourgeois family. I love the mystical moments in that because that, to me, I know that Bergman had a love-hate relationship with religion because of his father. But the film is very spiritual, And most people like to focus on the dark aspects of it, but there's transformation that happened with that family after that tragedy. And I, I, as a, you know, audience member wanted to continue that dialogue after I watched it. And I think it was the time period of his life where maybe he was questioning and he was looking at things from a more positive and more evolved point of view. And that was reflected in that film, certainly was reflected in that film. Ingmar Bergman's 1982 work, Fanny and Alexander, is the treat from Dorsey Alave, director of the documentary Wayne Shorter, Zero Gravity. Past treats include music producer Cheryl Pavelski on Transcendent Performance and are available at kcrw.com slash the treat. Masters at their crafts, from film to music to books to style, and explosions of inspirations that lighteth their way and propel them forward. It's the treat. 
and it's The Treatment, produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. We got help this week from Laura Kandarajan. To better days, everyone. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. <laughs> <laughs>